following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, now we're in this series uh, in Genesis. We're going through the, the early part of the book of Genesis. And so if you've got a Bible this morning... Uh, we're going to dive pretty much straight in there um, in those early parts. And if you remember last week, if those of you who were here, you remember we started on the story of Noah's Ark, one of the most well-known stories in the whole Bible, one of the most loved stories that we all, many of us heard at Sunday school, um, but maybe just haven't had so much to do with as adults and not quite sure where it fits into our faith. And we started exploring uh, that story as, as real history, as something that really happened. And um, that generated some interesting discussions. And I got some very, um, some very good feedback on that message last week, some very profound feedback. I want to read you part of an email that I got. Um, Ruben, I was devastated to discover that Thomas the Tank Engine isn't real, and then to find out that my wife knew about it all along and hadn't told me. So that's because I made that contrast between Thomas the Tank Engine and the flood, and uh, this is what I got. By the way, this is from one of the elders, just so you know. All right? this, is, this is what I'm working with, people. This is what I'm dealing with. So we, uh, we, we, did, we, we kind of got into some of the thorny issues around the flood story, and there are some thorny issues. And I, I think it's good, personally, that we don't dodge those, but that we just talk about them openly and raise the questions and try and find some answers. And so we talked about Noah, and we talked about the ark and how big it was, and we talked about all the animals, all the tens of thousands of animals that would have had to fit in this ark, and we talked about the flood and whether it was literally a global flood, and many people hold that view, or whether it was a more localized regional flood that covered the, the known world, the known earth at the time. And others hold that view. And you might have had a bit of a think this week about which camp you've been in. I hope that some of you have had a chance to read the story afresh, chapters 6, 7, 8, uh, and part of 9 in the book of Genesis, to familiarize yourself with the story. It's good to do, because you think you know it. You think you, you've got the details. And you come back to these stories, and there's things that you didn't notice and there's connections you didn't see, and there's things you thought were there that aren't, and things that you didn't realize were there. And there's always new things, even in these really well-known stories. So never stop reading these parts of the Bible, even the parts you think you know. So what we're going to do this morning is carry on from where we left off. And where we left off in the story was with Noah and these eight people in his family, and all these animals in this ark bobbing up and down on the surface of the water without a rudder, without a clue where they were going, without a destination, without any idea of how long this was going to go on for, and without any idea of how the story was going to end. And that's the end of chapter 7. That's where we got up to. So now we pick up the story in chapter 8, and we start to see the resolution of how all of this is going to work out. So at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals, and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now, that word wind in Hebrew is the word ruach. And it can be translated wind, it can also be translated spirit, it can be translated breath. And it's the same word that's used back in Genesis 1 verse 2, when it says the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit, the ruach of God, hovered over the waters. Do you remember that verse, those of you that were here last year, when we looked at that? We talked about, uh, in the beginning, how the earth was formless and void. 
Tohu wa bohu. Anyone remember that? Tohu wa, it's almost become like a catchphrase now in our church. Tohu wa bohu. The formless and void world, this desolate world, the chaotic world, that, that, that very original earth before anything was created upon it or done with it, that state of desolation and chaos, the tohu wa bohu, covered in water. But even then, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and the Spirit then brought life out of the desolation, life out of lifelessness. And here again, at the beginning of chapter 8 now, uh, as the flood begins to reside, you have the same kind of scene. You have the earth covered in water again, or at least the known earth. And you have this tohu wabohu kind of situation. You have chaos You have desolation, you have darkness over the surface of the deep, you have this foreboding, ominous ocean swirling around the world, and yet the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, or the wind, the breath of God is hovering again over the waters. And once again, God is going to work to bring new life out of chaos. Isn't that a great connection? Doesn't it tell you what sort of story this is going to be? That it's a creation story that the author is deliberately going back and digging up some of that story in Genesis 1 to tell you this is happening again. It's creation all over again. God is renewing. He's redeeming creation. It's like he's starting the world again. There's going to be this brand new earth that emerges, except this time it won't be God creating stuff from scratch. It'll be God renewing what is there, the floodwaters residing and the earth being uncovered and able to be inhabited again. But it's The Spirit of God bringing life out of lifelessness once again. It's creation beginning again. So the floodwaters reside. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters once again. The wind of God. And the floodwaters continue to reside over over days, over weeks. And then eventually the waters reside to the point that the ark comes to rest on on the ground, at least on the top of a mountain in verse 4. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, some of your translations may say Mount Ararat, as in one mountain. Uh, More literally and accurately, though, I think the NIV gets it right here. It's the mountains of Ararat. It's not talking about one particular mountain, but just a mountain range. And that makes it a little bit more difficult to pin down exactly where the ark uh, rested. There is a Mount Ararat. Uh, It's in Turkey. It's still called Mount Ararat. It's right on the eastern part, on the border of Turkey and Armenia. But you can go there today. I don't think you can climb it very easily. Uh, But it's a real mountain, and it really exists. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Noah's Ark is buried somewhere on that particular mountain. All we can say is that somewhere in that general area, that general mountain range or in the mountains of Armenia is the, the general vague vicinity of where this ark came to rest. You do get from time to time, and you may have heard of this, people that pop up from time to time and say, I know, I've discovered Noah's ark. Have you heard this? You know, some, some random person takes a film crew up to this area and claims with absolute certainty to have discovered Noah's ark. Uh, I saw a documentary like this the other day, and they take drone footage up there, and they look, it look, kind of looks like an ark, you know, it looks like a boat, uh, and all sorts of evidence that they, that they roll out. And this has happened from time to time. People have all kinds of theories. The thing you've got to remember with these, these claims, these theories about finding Noah's ark, is that none of that area has been very well excavated at all, partly because of the altitude is so high. Um, 
there's very little archaeology that's been done. So it's very difficult to say with any certainty that this is definitely the place. Maybe in years to come, there'll be some discoveries, there'll be some proper archaeological excavation that goes on, and we might know more. But at this stage, all you can say is it's in that general area, and just be wary of people that pop up claiming with absolute confidence they've found Noah's Ark because it hasn't been found yet. So just hold all that lightly, okay? So we know the general area. We don't know the specific location. But the Ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And as the floodwaters continue to recede, then Noah tries to figure out when it's safe for his family and the animals to disembark. And so he does this with using the birds. And you know this part of the story. He sends out the raven, first of all, and the raven keeps on coming back, can't find dry ground. And then he sends out a dove. And on the first attempt, the dove just comes straight back. And then on the second attempt, the dove comes back with an olive leaf in its mouth. So it's found at least that the waters have gone down to the tree line, wherever that is. And then as he sends the dove out the third time, the dove does not return. It's found a home. It's found dry ground. And so Noah at that point knows that the floodwaters have almost fully receded and it's safe to disembark. But he still waits for the word of the Lord. He still waits for God to tell him that it's safe to come out. And finally, God does. He announces in verse 15, God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number. And so all the passengers in this massive ship come out, they disembark onto dry ground. And you know the first thing Noah does? When he gets out of the ark, the very first thing he does, he builds an altar to the Lord. The very first thing Noah does is an act of worship to God. He builds an altar and he offers sacrifices on it. You read it in verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. This is why Noah had to bring seven pairs of some animals. Do you remember we talked about this? Because some of those animals were going to be used for sacrifices later on. It would have been a bit frustrating in some ways, wouldn't it? Bringing all these extra animals just to make sacrifices and slaughter them at the end of the journey. But this is how it worked. He had to bring extra animals for the sacrifices that he was going to make. So he comes out of the ark, and the first thing Noah does is he builds an altar. And an altar is just a very simple structure. This is the first time in the Bible an altar is built. And it's a simple pile of rocks or it's a pile of other materials, whatever you can find. But it's important because it marks a sacred space. It marks a space where God did something significant. And throughout the Old Testament, people built altars. You know, Jacob builds an altar where he wrestled with the angel. It marks a space where God and human beings meet and God does something incredible. And so Noah begins all of this by building a simple altar to the Lord and he sacrifices these animals on it and and we're told that the the smell of the sacrifice drifted up as a pleasing aroma to the Lord and Noah offers these animals as a sacrifice of thanks and worship to God. It's really the first act of worship in the Bible. I mean, people have prayed to God before this. People have communicated to God, but this is now the first act of worship in Scripture. And you can understand it. I mean, God has brought Noah through such An incredible ordeal, hasn't he? You think of what this would have been to come through that kind of experience. Think of the trauma of what he's gone through over the last 150 days. 
Think of the turmoil that he has gone through. God has wiped out the entire rest of the human population on planet Earth. But he spared Noah and his family. He could have wiped them out too. He would have had every reason to. But he has spared Noah and he has brought them through in this incredible act of deliverance, this incredible act of salvation and rescue. And now Noah finally steps onto dry ground. And what else can he do? But build an altar, make a sacrifice and say, thank you, God, for your deliverance. Thank you, God, for your salvation. His heart would have just been overflowing with thanksgiving at this point. And he's just saying, thank you, God, for what you have done in rescuing us. So he worships God there with his family, his first act of recorded worship in the Bible. And then following on from that, God then says a few words to Noah. And you come into chapter 9, and most of this chapter, at least the first half of the chapter, is God talking to Noah. And he says some pretty significant things to Noah. I want to focus on a few of these. The first thing he says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now, where have you heard those words before? Does this trigger any memories for you? Be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Isn't this what God said to Adam and Eve? It's the same deal. You see how this creation story is being retold now with Noah and his family? That original blessing was what God gave to Adam and Eve. He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth and so on. And now here he's saying the same thing to Noah and his sons. So just as Adam was the head of that original humanity, now Noah is the head, the beginnings of a new humanity. And the blessing of God rests upon Noah and his family just as it rested upon Adam. The blessing hasn't been lost. That's so important. In spite of the flood, in spite of the devastation, the blessing of God is still there. It still rests upon the human race. And now God says, you are the beginning. You're the new beginnings of a brand new humanity. I want you to go forth just as I commanded Adam and Eve to fill the earth, populate the earth, subdue the earth, rule over all things. You're going to be my representatives in this world. It's the creation story beginning again. So the blessing of God resting upon Noah and his family. That same blessing repeated as they have the same commission, the same mandate to fill and subdue the earth. And then God continues and he enters into this covenant with Noah. Now, this is really important. In verse 8, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, this is significant because it is the first time in the Bible that God makes a covenant. A covenant is just an agreement between two people or two parties, two groups of people. It's like a treaty. You could think of a covenant being like a treaty, like the Treaty of Waitangi, in a sense, was a covenant between two treaty partners, two groups that come together. They covenant together to partner together in a certain way going forward. It's the same kind of idea in Scripture. God enters into covenant relationships with certain individuals and certain people. And there's a number of covenants through the Bible. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Israel. 
He makes a covenant with David. In the New Testament, he makes a covenant with us. We are, those of us that are Christians, we're part of the new covenant with Jesus as the mediator of that covenant. So we are in this covenant relationship with God. That's the really significant covenant in the New Testament. So you have these covenants all the way through, but this is the first one. This is the first time God ever does this, enters into this covenant with Noah. And often what what tends to happen, I think, is this covenant with Noah gets a bit left out because we tend to focus on the biggies. You know, we focus on on the covenant with Israel and then the covenant with Jesus. That's the really big one, the new covenant. And we talk a lot about that as Christians, not so much about this little covenant with Noah right back in the beginning. We kind of, that seems obsolete now. But in fact, this covenant, we call it the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, it's incredibly important in the biblical story because what this does is it lays a foundation. It lays a foundation for all the other covenants that are going to come down the track. And it sets the scene for all the remaining uh, events in the biblical story. There is some very, very foundational stuff that God says here to Noah that lays a foundation for everything else that's to come. So I want to look a little bit at this in the the time that we've got left and just draw some things out of this covenant that were not only relevant to Noah and his family, but continue to be relevant to us today. Three things, three points I want to make about the Noahic covenant and its significance for our lives. The first is that this covenant with Noah represents God's yes to humanity. This is God's great big yes to us. To humanity. The central promise in this covenant is at the end of verse 11 never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God is saying, Never again am I going to do this. Never again am I going to wipe out all human life. There will be floods again, and there have been. There will be natural disasters, and there have been. But never again will God send any devastation that is so huge that it will wipe out all or almost all, human life. That's the promise that God makes. And I think we can take from that not just a flood. I don't think God's just saying, well, I'm not going to use a flood, but I might use something else. I might use an asteroid or something. I think the idea is I'm not going to destroy life again. And this is God turning to us, turning to humanity here at the beginning of the story and saying, I'm for you. he's, He's binding himself to us in this covenant relationship, and he's saying, I'm committed to you. I'm committed not just to the human race in general, but to every one of you. And and my face is turned towards you. And I'm going to treat you with love and with kindness and with compassion. I will preserve you. I will protect you. I will be with you. I will endure. I will journey with you. I will not allow you completely to be destroyed. This is God's great big yes. It's his fundamental covenant commitment to the welfare and the well-being of humanity. That's important. That's foundational for our lives. And God gives Noah this incredible sign of this promise that he's making. Every covenant in Scripture has a sign, and this one's no exception. And here's the sign. You know what the sign is of this covenant. Uh, God says in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between you and every living creature with you, a covenant for generations to come. I have set, verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I was really hoping today for a rainbow. You know, like with the weather being the way it is, I thought maybe, just maybe, as I say those words, a glorious rainbow would appear. Uh, Maybe, outside, that's happening. Just the nature of the conditions today, I thought we might have just made it. But we'll see. So you have this rainbow. Now, 
Here's the incredible thing about the rainbow. We, we think of the rainbow, and most of us you know, that have read this part of the Bible, you think that's God's promise, uh, never going to flood the world again. But in fact, there's even more to it. Uh, this word, this word that's used for rainbow, in a more literal sense, it just meant bow. It didn't really re- mean rainbow as we know it today. When Noah heard that word, he just thought bow, and he thought of one of these. That's a bow, a bow and arrow. Uh, the Hebrew word, it, it, it referred to this, and this is a weapon. This is a weapon of warfare. This was the primary weapon that was used, one of them, in these days. And so the connotations of a bow were warfare, uh, battle, conflict, injury, aggression, hunting. That's what a bow meant. That's what Noah would have thought of when God started talking about a bow, And so it would have sounded quite strange to him, I think, for God to say, well, I'm going to put my bow in the clouds, Noah. And Noah would have been thinking, how, how, are, you going to, what are, you going how are you going to put your bow, your bow and arrow in the clouds? What does this mean? And then Noah turns around and he sees this glorious rainbow, this multicolored, beautiful phenomenon in the sky. Now, he may, there may have been rainbows prior to this, possibly. I mean, there would have been rain and there was sunlight. But suddenly Noah realizes what God's done. He's taken this symbol of warfare, of violence, of hostility, and he's turned it into a symbol of peace. It's still shaped the same as the weapon, but now it means something completely different. And the idea is God saying, Noah, I'm hanging up my bow, like a warrior hanging up his boots like a huntsman hanging up his rifle. God's saying, I'm hanging up my bow. No longer will this be a weapon of warfare, but now I'm coming to you in peace. Now I'm coming to you in kindness. I'm no longer going to treat you with aggression and with hostility and with violence, but now I'm treating you with kindness and with love. And that is represented by this symbol of the rainbow. It's a beautiful kind of subverting of what the bow actually meant. When you consider the whole reason this flood came, you know, earlier in Genesis, it talks about the violence of the human race. And yet now God takes a symbol of violence. He turns it right around, makes it a symbol of his peace and his commitment and his solidarity with humanity. So when you see the rainbow, don't just think about God's never going to flood the world again. Think even more deeply that God relates to you with peace, with love, and with kindness and with commitment, no longer with hostility and aggression and hatred, that that's his fundamental disposition towards you is love now, that he loves you, that his face is turned towards you, that when God looks at you, he's smiling at you. Do you believe that? Some of you have a hard time believing that. What kind of expression do you think is on God's face when he looks at you? Have you thought about that? What kind of expression is on God's face when he looks at you? Some of you think it's a look of disappointment. Some of you think it's a look of anger. Some of you think it's a look of just boredom, like God is like, I'm just not that interested in you. But you know, when God looks at you, he smiles at you. He delights in you. Did you know that? He delights in you. That's why all the way over in the New Testament, Paul can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? That that promise finds its origin all the way back here with the rainbow. And with the covenant God made to Noah, God is for you. 
He's not against you. That's what the rainbow should remind, remind you of. In any situation you're in, when your back is up against any wall, in any circumstance, you can look at that rainbow and be reminded, God is for me and not against me. He is for my family and not against them. He is for us, not against us. It's a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful reminder. And it endures today, just as relevant to our lives today as it was to Noah and his family. So this is God's great big yes to us. Yes, I love you. Yes, I'm for you. Yes, I'm with you. But there's more. This is not only God's yes to humanity. It's also God's yes to creation itself. Look at who God makes this covenant with. In verse 10, or go back to 9, I established my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth is included in this covenant. You drop down to 13, and God says, I've set my rainbow in the clouds. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Did you know God makes this covenant with the earth? It's the only time this happens. Every other covenant in the Bible is with a group of people. It's Israel, or it's Abraham's descendants, or it's followers of Jesus or children of David, whoever it is. But here, God is saying, this is so broad, this covenant, it includes every single human person. doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, atheist, whatever. This is still a covenant with every single person. And every animal, every living creature, and the earth itself. This covenant is so broad, it encompasses the entirety of the earth. And just as God says yes to humanity, this is his covenant where he says yes to creation. He says, yes, I'm committed to this world that I've created, and I'm never going to destroy it like this again. I'm never going to bring this kind of devastation on this scale and scope again. God's saying, when I created that world back in Genesis 1, that was a good world. I called it good. I put a lot of work into that. Put a lot, of, a lot of artistry and creativity into that world. And I'm not giving up on it. This is God saying he's not giving up on and abandoning this world that he's created. But he is going to preserve this world right through time, right through to the end of the story. Sometimes we think that in the end, God's plan is just to destroy the world. That one day when Jesus returns, God's just going to burn this earth up and we're all going to be taken off to some other place. Well, I think that's hard to reconcile with God's covenant with Noah. And with the earth, God is at this moment in history in a covenant relationship with the earth. It's unavoidable from verse 13. That's the reality. So God's got a commitment here. And God's a God who keeps his promises. And that leads us to think in the end, God's desire is not to do away with the earth, but to renew it and redeem it and resurrect this world along with all those who love and belong to Jesus. And that will be part of the new heavens and the new earth. That's why you get to Romans 8 and Paul says things like creation is longing, groaning for its liberation. And one day creation will be set free to enjoy the freedom of the children of God. That creation itself will not be obliterated. It'll be set free. It'll be redeemed. And there'll be this brand new world, a renewed version of this world that we'll enjoy with God and one another for all eternity. So this is God's commitment to the world. This is God saying, the world is good. Don't mess it up. Uh, and it's a reminder to us in the way that we interact with the created world to also in our lives be saying yes 
to creation, just as God has said yes to creation, that we shouldn't abuse it, that we shouldn't treat animals cruelly or shouldn't treat the earth cruelly, but we should say yes to creation just as God has said yes to creation. So it reminds us God's covenant is broad. God's covenant is huge. And finally, very connected to that, this covenant with Noah, so it's God's yes to humanity, it's God's yes to creation, and then it is God's yes to the end of the story. And we've already touched on this, but right back here in this covenant with Noah, you get a little glimpse of where the whole story is heading. That in the, in the vision that you have in Scripture of what life is going to be like in the new creation, it's this vision of, of human life and animal life and nature, creation itself, all in this kind of integrated relationship of harmonious relationships, all working as it's supposed to work. And all that finds its origin here, where God ties all those three things together, himself, human life, all created life, and the earth itself. And he says, all of these things are part of the plans and purposes that I have for the world going forward. So all those things are going to find a place in God's new creation. You get a vision of that over in the book of Isaiah. Let me just read you and finish with this, just a quick passage from Isaiah chapter 11, where you see, you get a taste of what this world is going to be like. And Isaiah pictures it this way. He says, The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So those, those references to children putting their hands into the viper's nest, I mean, that makes any parent shiver, doesn't it? You know, that's the kind of thing you're just horrified of as parents. There's this idea that children are going near dangerous animals and putting their hands into snake pits and all of that kind of stuff. But this is what Isaiah is saying, that in the end, there will be total safety. There will be total security in this new world that God's bringing about. Remember over summer this year when we were at the beach uh, down in Coromandel and the beach round from us, there was a shark sighting. And, and it was legitimate. I mean, people got video of it. You could see this. And even though people are saying, well, you know, it's, it's a bronze whaler and they're not going to do you any harm and they're probably not going to come near you and you'll be fine. You know, like after seeing that shark, it does just give you a little bit more caution when our kids are in the water. We're just a little bit less keen for them to go too far out after that, you know? Just always making sure there's someone between our kids and the shark. You know, that's the key. <laughs> so you're always just thinking that way. I mean, as parents, that's, 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 how, it, that's how it is. But it's, isn't it an amazing thought that in the, in the new creation, you'll be able to go swimming with absolute safety and security. No worries about any sea creatures. No worries about rips and tides and currents. No worries about drownings. Just absolute security. And that's just one example of the earth and animal life and human life all working as it's supposed to work. That's the kind of picture that Isaiah is giving us of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. And that's, that's anchored all the way back here in this covenant God makes with Noah. And things weren't working perfectly back then, but we get a glimpse of the way God wanted it to be and the way he intends it to be one day, that there will be these harmonious relationships and it points us all the way to the end of the story. So when you see that rainbow... It should actually fill your heart with hope. Not just that God won't flood the world again, but that bigger, broader hope for the new heavens and the new earth that God's going to bring about with all that that means, with human beings living in relationship with God and self and one another and the animal world and the earth itself, all of those relationships finally perfected, 
finally working just right. That is going to be glory with God right in the center of it. And the rainbow reminds us of that promise and that hope. So the rainbow means a lot more than just God's not going to flood the world again. There's a depth of richness there. There's some beautiful themes from the whole biblical story that that rainbow taps into. And it's a present reminder to us of those promises. So the fundamental thing, I think, is this, to take from this covenant with Noah, that yes, we do live in a world that is under the curse of sin. No question about it. But we also live in a world that is under the covenant. Don't forget that. We live in a covenanted world, in a world that is still under the covenant because God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, Noah. That means that covenant is in effect all the way through, right to our day and all the way on into the new creation. We are under that same covenant today. This world is covenanted to God. It belongs to him and he has a rightful claim over it. That should give us some hope in the midst of all the brokenness and the awfulness that we see around us. This world is still under the covenant God made with Noah. That's a great sign. And as you look to that rainbow, just remember what it reminds us of. And remember that when God looks at that rainbow, he said, I will remember. I will remember when I look at it, just like you remember what it means. It means God's yes to us, God's yes to humanity. His face is towards you. He is for you and not against you. It is God's yes to creation, that he loves this world. He's redeemed this world, and one day he will renew this world. And it's God's yes to the end of the story. that The day is coming when God is going to make all things new. He's going to wipe away every tear. No more mourning, no crying, no pain. The old order of things will be passed away. All things will be made new. And that should lead us to say, yes, come Lord Jesus. Come and make that world new. That should be the pull of our hearts every time we see that rainbow. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that sign of the rainbow. And I pray, Lord, for us, next time we see one of those in the sky, whether it's today, in this coming week, whenever it is, Father, I pray that our minds would come back to the story. I pray, Lord, that whatever we're doing in that moment, no matter how busy we are, we would just stop for a few seconds and turn to you and say, thank you, God. Thank you for all that that rainbow signifies, for all the promises that are contained, for all the, 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 the greatness that you've unfolded and have yet to unfold in history and in our lives. All of it's wrapped up in that sign of the rainbow. We thank you, God, that it reminds us that you love us and that you're for us and you'll never leave us even in the darkest of times. And we thank you that it means you love this whole world that you've made and that the best is yet to come because you'll never leave us and you'll never forsake us. Thank you that you're a God of hope. You're a God of futures. Lord, that you're a God of new things that you're a God who is committed to us so fully and so completely. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.